Well, we're going to continue on uh, this morning with our uh, little three-week series on the hymn, Amazing Grace. I've never used a hymn before as a uh, topic starting point for a sermon, but uh, it's, I've really enjoyed over the last uh, two, three months as I've been digging into uh, understanding more about John Newton's life, the writer of Amazing Grace, and more about the history of this hymn itself. And of course, the hymn, as I pointed out last week, was written originally as a teaching tool. Uh, that's why John Newton wrote it, was to teach his largely illiterate congregation some important scriptural truths. So I think it's worth us taking a look at it as well. Uh, we sang it this morning, uh, all six verses, and it started with that verse we all know so well, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I decided to look up this week Merriam-Webster's definition of what is a wretch. And it turns out there are two definitions that go with it. A wretch can refer to a miserable person, one who is profoundly unhappy or in great misfortune. So that's one definition of wretch. Uh, the second one is it is a base, despicable, or vile person which, as I thought about it, it reminded me of a classic song that maybe you're familiar with as you move through the Christmas season. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. You really are a heel. And, of course, it goes from there, right? Uh, you're as cuddly as a cactus. You're as charming as an eel. You're a bad banana with a greasy black peel. Your brain is full of spiders, garlic in your soul. You have termites in your smile, Mr. Grinch. You have all the tender sweetness of a seasick crocodile. Probably Mr. Grinch would be the personification of definition number two for a wretch. And of the two definitions, I think that John Newton would doubtless have classified himself as first and foremost definition number two, the Mr. Grinch meaning. Uh, last week I told you a bit about Newton's hymn, but to really appreciate it, you need to know some more about the man. So today I want to give you a little more insight into John Newton, the man. Uh, John Newton was born to Captain John and Elizabeth Newton. August 4th of 1725. Uh, his mother was a woman of deep faith. She taught him to respect scripture and to believe in God's power. But sadly, Newton didn't have long with his mother. In 1732, at the age of 27, she died of tuberculosis. And so John was left without a mother just two weeks before his seventh birthday. His father remarried, and his new wife had two more sons. They had two more sons after John, and unfortunately, that meant that John was the lone stepson. And in that family, it meant that he became a bit of an outcast. And that problem was exacerbated by the fact that his father was, just by his nature, a rather stern and aloof individual, but he was also a ship's captain, which meant that he would be gone from home for months at a time leaving John with only his stepmother and his two younger half-brothers. Uh, Newton described his childhood like this. He said, my father left me much to run about the streets 
He kept me at a great distance. And so you have this picture of this young boy who has lost his mother and now feels himself this outcast in his own family. Well, at the age of eight, he was sent away to boarding school. And his first teacher was notable there because of his harsh discipline. In fact, he was described by one biographer as being a sadistic wielder of the cane. So you just imagine this young boy who has lost his mother, who feels alienated in his family, now sent away to a boarding school and living under the brutality of a rather sadistic teacher. Well, at age 10, his formal education ended. His dad decided he'd had enough school and that it was time for him to go to sea. And so at age 11, John Newton made his first voyage to Spain. That was actually quite common in that day. Boys were taken at a very young age oftentimes and put on ships and put to work, and that was true of Newton. Now, the trajectory of Newton's life, we're going to look at some of that this morning, but, but you'll find the trajectory of his life overall was downward for a lot of years. But there was one notable exception, and it was the result of a near miss. Uh, he had arranged to meet with a friend of his to go and tour a British naval ship, a man of war. And so he was very excited, and he got down to the docks, but he was running late. And when he got to the dock, he discovered that he had just missed getting on board the, uh, the longboat that was heading out to the ship in the harbor. So he's left standing on the dock. He's watching the boat roll away from him. And as they get out toward the middle of the harbor, something happened, and the longboat capsized. And everyone in the boat drowned. In fact, that's because in that day, uh, ironically and tragically, most sailors in that day didn't know how to swim. Could you imagine having a life at sea and knowing that if you fell off the ship, you're almost certainly going to die? Well, John was very shook up. I mean, he watched all of these people knowing that he should have been in the boat with them, and, and he watched them all drown. Well, it shook him so deeply, and he decided that his... The fact that he had been saved really was divine intervention. He uh, resolved that he was going to renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so for the next two years, he became an ascetic. He decided if a little religion might be good, a lot of religion had to be better. And so he undertook this very strict life and, and trying to deprive himself and, and tame his flesh in that way. And he said of that period, he says it was poor religion. It tended to make me gloomy, unsociable, and useless. Well, it was sometime after that that he was given the opportunity to become an officer on a ship that was bound for Jamaica. And it was the kind of voyage that uh, promised to make him a wealthy man, that the sailors on the ship shared in the wealth of the trade. But uh, Newton, just a few days before the ship was supposed to sail, uh, this very plum job, his father, a ship's captain, helped to line this job up for him. Uh, but just before he was supposed to sail, he went to visit some relatives. And when he got to the relative's house, he met a young woman, uh, Mary Clatlett, or better known as Polly. Polly was only 13 years old at the time. Uh, Newton himself was still a teenager. I think he was about 16, 17 at this point. And, uh, but for Newton, as soon as he laid eyes on Polly, it was love at first sight. He was absolutely smitten with her. Uh, now, Polly was his first cousin by marriage, 
but it was quite common in that day in England for cousins to marry. And, and so Newton was just overwhelmed with Polly. And uh, that resulted in him making a decision to extend his visit, and he missed getting on his ship, which didn't make him very popular with his father, the stern ship's captain, that he would choose to simply not show up for work. Well, life took a significant turn for John in the spring of 1744. Uh, once again, he was out spending time with Polly's family, and uh, he'd gone out for a walk in the town of Chatham. And while he was out on this walk, he ran into what was called a press gang. Now, the way it worked back in the day, if a British naval ship needed more crew, the way that you recruited was you sent a bunch of sailors out. They walked through the streets. If they saw a young guy that looked like he could be a sailor, they just grabbed him, tied him up, and took him back to the ship. And you're in the Navy now. And that was very accepted. That's just the way it was done. And so that's what happened to John Newton. He uh, became involved in the naval draft slash kidnapping and found himself on a British naval ship. Now, because of John's connections through his father, because his father was a ship's captain and had a great reputation, uh, Newton was quickly promoted from being just a common seaman to an officer. And, uh, and you would think that he would be uh, counting his blessings at that point. But he actually established a reputation for being a very arrogant and harsh uh, leader to the men who were under him. And uh, that was going to come back to haunt him later. His undoing was again the result of his passion for Polly. He couldn't stop thinking about Polly, wanting to spend time with her. And so just before they were to leave on an extended voyage, he asked for a one-day shore leave from the captain. Now, the thing was, when Newton asked for that one-day shore leave, he knew that he was lying because there was no way that he could travel from the harbor all the way to where Polly lived and get back in time to be on that ship with only one day away. Rather than being gone one day, as he was authorized, he was gone for almost two weeks. The result was that he totally lost his captain's trust, although his captain appeared to be a very gracious man because at the time he didn't exact any corporal punishment, which was very common against sailors who had had a violation. It was about that time that Newton ran into a guy named Harwich James Mitchell. And Mitchell would redirect the course of Newton's life. Mitchell was older than Newton, he was better educated, and he was also a self-professed free thinker. Uh, he was an atheist. And he took it as his personal job to wean Newton away from any faith in God. And sadly, he was very successful. Newton eventually abandoned any pretext of faith and proclaimed himself to be an atheist. And with the loss of faith, there was also this loss of any kind of moral restraint in Newton's life. He became dedicated to only two things, himself and his love for Polly. Well, pretty soon he heard that his ship was going to be deployed to the East Indies. It was a five-year assignment. He couldn't bear the thought of not seeing Polly for five years. And he had adopted this personal motto ever since he renounced his faith. His personal motto was, never deliberate. And so, without much thought as to consequences, he took the opportunity and he snuck away from a shore party that he was in charge of 
to make the 25-mile walk to Polly's house. So here's the irony. He was the officer in charge of making sure there were no deserters, and he was the one who deserted. Well, uh, unfortunately for John, he was caught, and the captain, who had been merciful the first time, showed him no mercy this time around. He was stripped of all of his rank, and then he was publicly flogged aboard the ship. With all of the crew looking on, he was stripped down, tied to a frame, and as the drums rolled, he was beaten with a whip of nine tails, uh, knotted ropes, which left him with deep lacerations all across his back, deeply bruised. But worse than the beating, really, was the demotion. Remember I told you that uh, he had a reputation for being arrogant and harsh to the men under his command? Well, suddenly those guys weren't under his command. He was now one of them. And he was on a ship. There's no place to hide. And they took their vengeance out on the humiliated Newton. But rather than being broken or humbled, Newton became bitter and enraged. He began to fantasize about killing his captain and even taking his own life. And then Newton got out of the Navy. In a very bizarre twist, there was a merchant ship that was passing them that was going to make an exchange for some crew. Newton found out and went to the captain and pleaded that he be exchanged to go work on the merchant ship. And, and the captain didn't owe him any favors, but what it really was, the captain was so disgusted with him that he saw an opportunity to get rid of this troublemaker, and so he said, fine, go get on the merchant ship. And so just like that, with about 30 minutes notice, John went from being on a naval ship to being on a merchant ship. Uh, the new captain actually knew Newton's father. It was inclined to treat him well and, and tried to do right by him. But Newton was still this angry, bitter, self-obsessed young man, and he had no appreciation. In fact, he not only failed to show respect to the captain, he actually became a bad influence on the crew. Uh, he tried to poison their attitudes, really tried to instigate mutiny. And, uh, in fact, Newton, who would one day pen the world's most famous hymn, first employed his poetic skills to degrade his captain. I made a song in which I ridiculed his ship, his designs, and his person, and soon taught it to the ship's company. I was exceedingly vile. I not only sinned with a high hand myself, but made it my study to tempt and seduce others upon every occasion. And it wasn't just toward his captain that he had no regard. His bitterness vented itself at the God he swore he didn't believe in. One of his biographers noted that Newton had become notorious, even in the company of merchant seamen, for his foul oaths and blasphemings. I'll tell you next week about some of the toils and snares that awaited Newton before he discovered God's grace. But let me just outline a few other details that really defined his life at this stage. Uh, he eventually ended up in Africa as a slave trader. And while he was there, though he still professed that he had love for Polly, he chose to use slave women for his own pleasures. He also got involved in practicing some of the local witchcraft, which was interesting. A man who had renounced God, still with a spiritual vacuum in his life, turned to looking for ways to control spiritual darkness for his benefit. A few years later, alcohol became a major part of Newton's life. 
but interestingly, not in the way you might think. Here's how he described it. He said, sometimes I'd promote a drinking bout for the sake of a frolic. Although I did not love the liquor, I was sold to do iniquity and delighted in mischief. He just saw it as a way to raise some trouble. Well, Newton, at this time, was only 22 years old. Sold to do iniquity and delighting in mischief. The picture we get is of a young man who was completely self-absorbed, rebellious, abusive, bitter, impulsive, and eager to take others with him in his rebellion. And who would ever think that a guy like that would become the poet behind the world's best-loved hymn, a minister with a tremendous impact for the gospel, a leading voice for the abolition of slavery in England. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. You know, Newton's story is gripping. It's such a dichotomy that we see, his change from the man that he was to the man that he became. But, but even more important for us, for you, is your story. I think one of the reasons those opening words of amazing grace are so loved across the world is because each of us knows on an individual basis that they're so true of us. Most of us probably don't have a wretch list quite like John Newton's, but we all have a list. I have a list. Do you have a list? We all have some history that we'd be a little reluctant to share. And maybe our wretchedness isn't so much the Merriam-Webster number two definition of being despicable. Maybe it's more that number one definition, a miserable person, one who is profoundly unhappy or in great misfortune. And sometimes people balk at the message of the gospel because it begins with this observation that none of us in ourselves are good enough for heaven. Here's how the Apostle Paul said it in Romans chapter 3. He said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we don't really like that appraisal being made of our lives. But I don't think that starting point is really anything that we didn't already know. I mean, we might not like to admit it. I don't like to admit it. And we might wish that God would grade on more of a curve than out of absolute purity. But we know that all things considered, if all truths are known about us, Wretch isn't totally off the mark. What's amazing isn't that we've done wretched things, big or small. What's amazing is that God still loves us. And doesn't just love us from a distance, but the gospel proclaims that he took personal, painful, costly action to rescue us from ourselves. I come back again and again to the story of Jesus hanging on the cross, the victim of 
naked political ambitions and false accusations, beaten, stripped naked, mocked, spit on, ultimately crucified by the very people who were supposed to be the standard bearers for religious purity. Dying by the most cruel means that, Roman, that Rome could devise. And it, in that moment, as he took his last breaths on that cross, he gathered them up and used them to pray this prayer. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So what does it require for us to become right with God? How do we make up for the misdeeds we've done? How do we undo our wretchedness? How do we prove ourselves to be worthy of such a sacrifice? Well, grace says that there is nothing we can do except to receive it as the gift it is. I read you that verse out of Romans 3.23. Here's what more the passage says around it. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. Amen. And not only does God's grace open a door for us to be okay with him, he actually delights to take people like us and let us become part of his plan. I think of the Apostle Paul, the guy that wrote these words. As I pointed out last week, he was a guy who had plenty of wretchedness in his past. And yet he was a man who was transformed and given a new mission thanks to God's grace. Here's how he expressed it to his young friend, Timothy. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him, even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ. In my insolence, I persecuted his people. But God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that come from Christ Jesus. Here's how John Newton described it. Thou hast given an apostate a name and a place among thy children, called an infidel to the ministry of the gospel. I am a poor wretch, that once wandered naked and barefoot, without a home, without a friend, and now for me who once used to be on the ground and was treated as a dog by all around me, thou hast prepared a house suitable to the connection thou hast put me into. So what about you? Have you opened yourself to God's grace? What opportunities has God graciously blessed you with to be part of his plans, not to earn his favor, 
but to participate in what he's doing to give grace to others. Some of us received that grace a long time ago. But then as the years have passed, we've discovered new things in our lives, or we've entered into things that have caused us shame. We've made decisions. We've fallen into habits, or we've gotten sidetracked in ways that sometimes leave us feeling unworthy of God's love and unusable by him. And then add to that the reality that Scripture speaks of a a powerful spiritual enemy. Here's how he's described in Revelation 12.10. John, who's having this vision, says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Quite a description of Satan, isn't it? the accuser of the brothers, who accuses them day and night. And I would contend that it's not only God that Satan accuses us to. He loves to speak those words into our ears as well, doesn't he? Who do you think you are? How could God love or use someone like you? And if we listen, and if we take it in, And if we believe that that is the gospel truth, it immobilizes us. But that's not the gospel truth. Here's the response of grace. Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who would dare to accuse us? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You thought about that? At those moments when you are raining down condemnation on yourself for where you failed, Jesus is not before the Father jumping on the bandwagon of your self-condemnation. He says he is interceding for us in grace because he loves us. If you're a person who carries shame, let me ask you something. What would you, by faith, be willing to attempt for God if you were free of that shame? What would you do? if you are free of shame? Is there something in your present that needs to be repented of? Some choice that you're actively making right now and you need to break free from it? Is there something in your past that needs to be released? A place you need to know once and for all that grace has covered that dark history, whatever it is. Do you know Do you really know that God is for you? Not because you deserve it, but because his core character is love. Not a sentimental love, but a real, deep, pure, holy love. He sent his son 
because he is first and foremost the God of redemption, restoration, and reconciliation. Grace embraced means that your greatest shame can become the lens that magnifies his infinitely greater love and power. The things that in any other realm would render you disgraced and useless, redeemed by God's grace, become kindling for the bonfire of his glory. David Aiken, in his biography of Newton, makes this observation about Newton the man saved by grace. Throughout his long and influential public life, the outstanding features of Newton's private character were faith, humility, and gratitude. The faith was his certainty of God's faithfulness. The humility was his genuine sense of a sinner's unworthiness. The gratitude was the overflowing thankfulness of his heart to God for the amazing grace that in the lines of his immortal hymn saved a wretch like me. Amazing grace. I don't want us to walk away from this morning without giving you an opportunity to talk to the God who loves you and receive grace. So could I ask you to bow your heads? See, the cross is not a monument to our successes. It is the symbol that summarizes the messes that we've made. Jesus hanging on that cross is the tangible, historical reality that God himself, in the person of his only son, took our wretchednesses, mine and yours, the biggest to the smallest. He took them on himself. He took our place and in place of a cross, he offers us forgiveness. He offers us grace. So could I invite you in the quietness of your heart to take your mess, whatever it is, maybe it's a mess in the past, maybe it's a mess that's right now in your present, and to lay it at the foot of the cross. Release it. Maybe it's something you're actively engaged in, you need to let go of. But lay it there. Stop clinging to the thing that's brought you so much shame and pain. Ask the God who loves you to wash you in his amazing grace. Go ahead, talk to him about it. Father, you hear the prayer of several hundred hearts lifted up to you. Lord Jesus, you know all of our messy past. 
You know about the things that we would not want anyone else to ever know about. You know about the things that everyone else knows about that cause us shame. And Lord, we come to you as your people, not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, not because we can earn it. We just come as people that need you, Lord. We need grace. And we bring our messes and we, we just lay them here at the foot of the cross, Lord. And we admit that we've got stuff in our lives that we don't know how to untangle. And we can't undo the past and we can't fix all the things that we've broken. But we bring them to you because you're the one who came to give yourself for us. You went to that cross to cover the biggest of our messes. And so we bring them to you, Lord. And we'd ask that you'd pray that prayer once again over us. Father, forgive them. We don't know what we're doing half the time. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your great love. Would you in grace lift those burdens off of our hearts and free us to serve you? I pray this in your powerful name. Amen. Thank you.